It's so great to be with you again here at Eastview, and uh, we're going to be in John chapter 4, so if you would uh, get out your Bibles, your electronic devices, turn or click to John chapter 4. Now, before I jump in here again, I really do have a love for this church and uh, so grateful for opportunities to come here uh, to teach the Word of God. I never presume on the fact that this could be the last time I ever get a chance to preach or teach the Word of God. And I know that God gives breath, and uh, by the grace of God, we get to even receive or listen to the Word. Uh, I also want to say today that I'm kind of moving on fumes. My flight arrived this morning just before 2 a.m. because of weather delays. Yeah, so then because the rental car thing wasn't there and I didn't want anybody to have to get up, I walked from uh, the airport to my hotel, which was thankfully just across the street there at the Holiday Inn. Then they put me in a room that ended up being 82 degrees so that uh, the air conditioning wasn't working. So I had to go back down and change rooms about two o'clock in the morning. But they put me in a room that I didn't know that didn't have curtains or the shades didn't draw. So when the sun came up at about 4.30... Glad y'all know how to laugh at the guest speaker. (laughs) Anyway, if I say something dumb today, good news is somebody else will be preaching next week. Amen. (laughs) To the glory of God. Do you know what terminal dehydration is? It's death by dehydration. Terminal dehydration. There's extreme thirst, dry mouth, thick saliva, the tongue swells, Patients become dizzy, faint, and unable to stand or sit. Severe cramping of the arms and legs as the sodium and potassium concentrations of the body goes up, the fluids go down. Patients try to cry, but there's no tears. The patient experiences severe abdominal cramps, nausea, dry heaving of the stomach. The intestines dry out. By now, the skin and lips are cracking and the tongue is swollen. The nose may bleed as mucous membranes dry out and break down. Skin loses its elasticity, thins, and then wrinkles. The hands and feet become cold as the remaining fluids in the circulatory system are shunted to the vital organs as they attempt to stay alive. The person stops urinating, has severe headaches, As their brain shrinks back from lack of fluids, sometimes rupturing as it tears from the skull. Some patients hallucinate, have seizures, as their body chemistry becomes even more imbalanced. And this proceeds then to coma right before death occurs. The final event, as the blood pressure becomes almost undetectable, is a major heart arrhythmia that stops the heart from pumping. Some medical experts have suggested that terminal dehydration is exceedingly painful. That is no way that I want to die. Jesus says that you and I have something that our body needs more than water. And if you go to any other source, more than the source you really need, your thirst will only increase. Jesus says to us very clearly here in chapter four, we're gonna see this, that he says that he has something that your body needs more than even water. You're like, yeah, coffee, right? No, 
No, not coffee. Some of you are like, yeah, you got your coffee in. You're like, you should be drinking coffee today, Pastor. That would help you. Unfortunately, I don't like coffee. I, I don't drink coffee. Um, I don't like, it's not a, like a, a conviction thing. It's a taste and smell thing. I can't stand the taste of coffee. And the smell of it is just disgusting to me. I don't know why. And my family loves it. My wife brews a fresh pot every morning. It's got one of those fancy, I don't even know whatever it is. And she makes it. My son was a barista at a local um, well-known national uh, coffee shop when he was in college. And uh, so he served all the time. He's like, Padre, it, my kids call me Padre. We're gonna get you something we're going to get you something to where you you really like coffee. I'm going to get you turned on to coffee. So over the years, he's tried me, had me try all kinds of coffee. He's the type that brings in beans from different parts of the world. I mean, he's a real connoisseur, right? He's like, these were roasted here. You'll probably like this. I've tried, he only, he like, He's only into pour overs, right? Don't give him coffee from a coffee pot. So that's what happens when you're a barista, right? And then somebody comes along and they're like, oh, you'd like my coffee. And I'm like, really? And then they put together and I watch them and that sugar and, you know, cream and sugar. Put enough sugar and cream in anything and you can turn it into a donut. And who doesn't like a donut? <laughs> so I'm like, no, 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 I just don't like coffee. And my wife is like, I wish you liked coffee. I really want you to come out in the mornings and just sit on the porch with me and drink some coffee. I'm like, I just don't like it. I don't like the smell. I don't like the taste. It's not like when I'm thirsty, I don't want any coffee. And she says, well, just here. And she, she gets out coffee mugs. She does this. And she'll go to the refrigerator and get out simply orange, orange juice, because that's the only type we buy. She pours it into a coffee mug and hands it to me and says, come out onto the porch and pretend that you're drinking coffee. <laughs> And then she says, pretend that you're a man drinking coffee <laughs> with me. So I sit out on the porch and I hold my coffee mug and, oh, it's burning my lips, this orange juice is, right? Jesus says that I have something your body needs more than water. It's not coffee. It's not even just literally ordinary water. And he juxtaposes in this passage that he has a source that's really the source that we need. And if we don't go to him, our thirst will only increase. The key critical verse in this passage is the 13th verse. Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus says, look, there's ordinary water and then there's the water that I give you. Now, who is he talking with? He is talking with the Samaritan woman at a well and let's set this context up. Verse three, John chapter four, verse three is where we'll begin. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. So in Israel, Judea is where Jerusalem is in that region. That's the southern part of Israel. He's heading to the northern part of Galilee where he grew up. Now he's born in the southern region in Bethlehem, but he is raised in Nazareth, which is up in the Galilean area. That's why they called him Jesus of Nazareth or Jesus the Galilean, or the questions were often, are you two Galileans? You know, as if you were Jesus' friends. Uh, Galilee is very agrarian. 
Uh, it's, it's very, very beautiful. This is also where obviously the Sea of Galilee is. So to travel from the south to the north, you have two routes that you can go. You either go through Samaria or you have to cut over to the east side and head up what would be the Transjordan side. Um, and really Jewish people would take either route. Some wanted to avoid going through Samaria because of the tensions that existed between the Jewish community and the, so between the, the Jews and the Samaritans. And why is this? Because during the first major war and takeover where the temple was destroyed, uh, the Assyrians that the, the, the came, their, their partnership was with the Samarians and they crushed and overthrew. So then what happens is several centuries later, you have this high, Jewish high priest leader, uh, John Hyrcanus, and he's a Hasmonean, and he leads a revolt back against them and destroys the temple of the Samaritans that's on their holy mountain. So two different holy mountains. For the Jewish people, the holy mountain is Mount Zion. It's Mount, what is also Mount Moriah, right? This same mountain, Mount Zion, where the temple for, in Judaism, where the holy temple is that Solomon builds, that King David initiates, but his son Solomon ends up completing the task. And later, Herod does all kinds, Herod the Great does all kinds of enhancements to it. But the Samaritans actually had their own temple on what they thought was actually the real holy mountain, Mount Gerizim. And what they said was that this is the sacred mountain. And why is this? Because this is the place where we see there a little further north in Samaria that at Mount Gerizim, instead of Mount Zion, this is where Abraham came and first built his altar after God asked him to go and start a brand new nation. Can you imagine that as a call? I want you to start a new country, a new people. But it wasn't just Abraham, it was his grandson, Jacob. That's where Jacob's well is. And that's where when Jacob came over and found some fresh water, right? Coming from a spring, he digs a well, he builds an altar there. So Abraham had built an altar there at Mount Gerizim. So had Jacob. This is also where Joseph's bones are brought over and buried later on. So this has massive religious significance to that group of people. So when John Hyrcanus leads this revolt and burns and destroys their religious sites and their temple, it was payback for what they had done in Jerusalem many years, many centuries before. And so there was truly a history of tribal tension between the Samaritans and the Jewish people. And there was ethnic tension and they did not like to associate with each other. Now look at verse four. Now he, Jesus, had to go through Samaria. Why does he, the son of God, have to go anywhere? It's because the father must have led him to need to go this route, right? This is deeply uh, a theocentric uh, a crux here that is telling us the father... Jesus said, I've come to do what the Father asked me to do. If he had to go through, nobody's making him go through, except the Father must be the Heavenly Father's requesting that he do this. Verse five, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. Now, Jesus just sits down there 
you can visit there to this day. One of the most likely authentic sites if you tour Israel is this well that you could go to and you could see that it's, it's about 100 feet down, about the same today as it was in the time of Christ. You can still draw water. It's fed by a spring. It's really a fascinating thing. But Jesus takes this route through enemy territory where there's religious disagreement, where there is ethnic tension, where there are barriers. And as he sits at this well, a Samaritan woman comes, verse 7, to draw some water. So Jesus says to her, verse seven, will you give me a drink? His disciples, verse eight, had gone into town to buy food. So the Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. So I already gave you some of the history about why there's not an association and there's tension. There'd been wars and strife and burning of temples and tearing you know, each other apart religiously. But what you also have to understand is there's a significant difference in beliefs. The Samaritan's Bible only had five books in it. There, what you would say, well, the Hebrew Bible, for the Hebrews, right, there's 39 books. Well, that's the way we receive it, the receptivity of it in Protestantism is anyway. 66 books in the Bible, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New. In Judaism, the Jewish community, and same thing for us today, there's a reception of more than just five books. And this is what we, they call the Hebrew Bible, what we would refer to as an Old Testament or the First Testament. To them, it's not old. It is the word of God. It is the Hebrew Bible. Samaritans only had five books in their Bible, the Pentateuch. They had Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That was the word of God. That was it. The last great prophet for the Samaritans is Moses. So Isaiah and Jeremiah don't carry the weight that they do for the Jewish community. So when Jesus sits down at this well and he's having this drink, uh, uh, asking for this drink, right? He says, will you give me a drink of this water? And she's like, well, wait a second, you're a Jew. So you got historical barriers. You got the ethnic barriers, right? You also have theological barriers barriers that are going on. A Jewish man asking a Samaritan woman. Now you have a gender barrier because you would not associate and then engage, especially at high noon. What is a woman doing at the well at noon instead of early in the morning at six or later on uh, at dusk, at dawn or dusk? What is she doing drawing up this water? Well, we know based on the text uh, she had an immoral lifestyle, most likely. She had been through a lot, was not most likely accepted because of the, the, the Samaritans were very serious about their moral purity around sexual ethics, just as the Jewish community was. And she would have not been allowed to travel with the other women probably early in the morning and the evenings, and they wouldn't have wanted to associate with her uncleanness. So she would go to the well in the heat of the day to draw water for herself. Now, Jesus, verse four, had to go there. You think this isn't a divine appointment? Notice how Jesus is never looking out for the theological elites. He's always going to the outcasts. He's always going to those that feel rejected. He's always going to those who are very, very unaccepted and unliked or unlovable in their community. And Jesus does not see it this way. So 
there is not just historical barrier. There's not just an ethnic barrier, a theological barrier. There is a gender barrier that is going on, but there's also a moral purity barrier. This is a Jewish man would not associate with a woman at noon at a well like that, or it would have been an advance. It would have been as though here's a Jewish man. Why, the only reason you'd come talk to me is because you know that I'm here drawing this water by myself because I'm not accepted in my own community. There's got to be something in her past. So it's even been suggested by some commentators that anyone on the outside would have viewed this, which is why would have viewed this as a solicitation, which is why when the disciples come back, they see Jesus there and they're like, whoa, what's he doing with this woman at this well? But no one knows what the text says in the Bible, but no one dared ask him why. But it's like, what for all these barriers and reasons, but of course, Jesus has his amazing reason. He does ask for a drink. And here's one of the primary things we must hold on to. Jesus isn't worried about how unclean she is, though others may be, because Jesus cannot be contaminated by what is unclean because he cleanses whatever he touches. This is part of life when it comes to the spiritual dynamics of Christ. When lepers touch Jesus, he doesn't get leprosy. But when Jesus touches lepers, they are cleansed. The Samaritan woman can't defile Christ, but he will become defiled for her on the cross. See, defilement will not happen at the well because it must wait for the cross. It's on the cross where he who knew no sin becomes our sin so that we can become the righteousness of God, 2 Corinthians 5.21. So what's happened here is I think about my own. If Jesus had had this encounter with me at a well, offering this living water, it is whatever, whoever Jesus comes into contact with, that person or that thing can never defile the holy, righteous attributes, nature, and essence, and character of Almighty God in the flesh. So this Samaritan woman can't defile him, and he knows that, but he will become defiled for her. What do you mean? Is it on the cross, on the Roman crucifix, on that tree, he who, what, knew no sin, became our sin. He became a curse to lift us from the curse. He Becoming our sin, he takes on the defilement of the weight of the world, which is why he cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That great cry of dereliction. It, it is that the defilement doesn't happen. It must wait for the cross and Christ knows this. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God, who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So Jesus is like, if you just knew who was sitting here with you, if you just knew what I could do for you, which doesn't he cry that out today? So many people, and I just wanna to say to those of you that are here worshiping here at the normal campus, those of you that may be worshiping at the Bloomington campus, I welcome those of you, Bloomington, those of you watching online. Do you know what Jesus is offering to you today? Like this offer 
This offer is not just in this moment for this Samaritan woman. The scripture is telling us here, if you knew the gift of God, if we just knew the gift is that love came down. The great advent of Christmas is that gift of God in the flesh, that love breaks through, something new is occurring. And he says, if you just knew that, you would ask and I'd give it. If you just ask, I'd give it to you. Sir, verse 11, the woman said, you don't have a bucket and this well is really deep. You got nothing to draw with. Where are you gonna get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as did also his sons and his livestock? She's, she doesn't get it. She's not connecting this up. She's like, where are you gonna come up with this magic water? What are you going to draw it from this well? I can get water from this well. And, and you can see the disconnect. He goes on, verse 13, Jesus answered, and this is the key verse. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. She says, you take your bucket, put it down into Jacob's well and draw up and drink all you want. And you're going to have to come here again tomorrow at noon. And you're going to have to come again at noon because I know that you can't come with the other ladies at dawn or dusk because you're not clean because of your past. Because what he's going to tell here in just a moment is what? He's going to tell her prophetically. Yeah, I know about the five husbands you've had. And I know that the man that you're living with right now, that you're cohabitating with, that he's not your husband even at this very moment. So this is part of the, the clue that John the evangelist, the gospel writer, allows us to peer into and see that there's more to this story. But Jesus says, everyone who drinks this water, he says, he says, listen, ma'am, if you keep putting your bucket down into this well, you're gonna keep thirsting again. You'll be here again. But if you would drink the water I give you, you will never thirst again. Indeed, the water that I give them will become in them a spring of water. It'll be an internal spring welling up to eternal life. Jesus is offering something magnificent, but this woman keeps putting her bucket down into something else. This is exactly what Jeremiah said in the Old Testament that Jesus would have understood. In fact, when Jesus is saying this, John would have known this and understood. This is a reference here in the 13th verse. This is the imagery that would come up for any Jewish person that knew their scriptures would have been out of Jeremiah chapter two. Jesus would have understood that out of Jeremiah chapter two. The Samaritan woman would know nothing about it because Torah is all her Bible is. It's just the Pentateuch. Jeremiah, the last prophet is Moses. So she wouldn't have received the teachings that would have come from Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter two, verses 11 through 13. Has a nation ever changed its gods? Yet they are not gods at all. But my people have exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. Be appalled at this, you heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. Why? My people have committed two sins, not one, two. It's a couplet, right? And look at this. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, 
I offer them living water and they have forsaken me, their great God, and turned to what? To false idols. That's why they exchanged their glorious God for worthless idol. John Calvin had it right. The heart is nothing but a perpetual idol factory. It's like we cannot just abide in the bread of life. The, the stream of living water in our great God. So he says, my people committed two sins. First of all, they have forsaken me, the spring of living water. And once they forsake me as living water, they experience dehydration. And it will be terminal if they do not look for something to quench their thirst. So then what's the second sin? So then they go and dig their own cisterns which by the way are broken cisterns that cannot hold water. You wanna know what broken cisterns are? Read the entire 12 chapters of the book of Ecclesiastes and you find out what broken cisterns are. Every single thing that we take our bucket and dip it down into to find something to bring hydration to our life, satisfaction, meaning, purpose. So what do people do? They take their buckets and they dip it down into all kinds of things trying to bring meaning. What's the context for this woman? She was dipping her bucket down into men. Now we don't know the reasons for the divorce. Could have been, some of it could have been death, right? Some of it could have been unfaithfulness. Some of it could have been just all the reasons that, that we can go through. We don't know if, if the loss of the, the husbands was, was because of, of death or because of divorce or because of some other uh, issue that we, we could see. All we know is that she has five husbands and the man she's living with right now is not her husband. So the implication is that she was putting her bucket down into human relationships, looking for a man to satisfy the deepest longings of her heart. And it was coming up bankrupt. So here she, so is number six gonna work? The man she's living, what about seventh? What about an eighth man? What about a ninth man? Or, or what about a 10th man? I mean, where do you, right? This is the message that's coming in. So this is, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and then they dug their own cisterns. And notice these two sins come together. In other words, as soon as we forsake God, we got to dig a cistern. See, when we forsake God, we got to find something God, some God to worship. So we go to our little G gods and it's money and power and sex and relationships or living vicariously through our children or a career or accolades or applause or whatever it is that we're living for, right? We, we live for eat, drink, and be merry, the accumulation of factors, whatever it may be. And uh, this couplet of sins, but that we understand that sometimes when you sin, another sin automatically comes with it and the two are inseparable. If you forsake God, you dig a cistern. If you forsake God, you turn to another idol. But you know, I've, I've said this, anything that you put your heart into, all of your time, your energy, your money and your effort other than God and it becomes a priority, that is to worship that and that is a sin. Even when it comes to sports, Got any Chicago Bears fans here? Raise your hand if you're a Chicago Bears fan. Okay, two or three of you will admit it. All right, I see how, I see how you are this morning. Uh, you know that if you put all of your heart, energy, thought, and time, emotions into the Chicago Bears more than you do to the Lord, that is a sin. If I put all my time, energy, thought, you know, into the Dallas Cowboys, right? America's team right? And it's like, if I put all my time into that, 
That's a sin. If you put all of your time, your energy, your thought, your emotions into the Green Bay Packers, that's a double sin. It's, <laughs> that works for both Cowboys and Bears fans, doesn't it? Can I get an amen? Yeah. Well, that's a humorous way of saying there's a couplet, but I'm saying legitimately there is a couplet. But there's always a couplet when it comes to sinning, especially for the believer. I sin before I sin. What do you mean, pastor? I mean that oftentimes I'm getting ready to decide myself into a thought or an action, and I can feel the prompting of the Holy Spirit telling me not to go there. And so what do I do? I sin before I sin. I first sin by grieving the spirit, then I sin by then stepping into the action. So it comes as a couplet. And what is that? Forsake God, dig a well. Forsake God, find another idol. Don't worship God. You are and I am created to worship something or someone. So we will turn to our broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Jesus is telling this woman and telling us, if you put the bucket of your soul into any other relationship more than your relationship with me, you're gonna die of thirst even faster. That's what he's telling us. Put it into any security more than the security Christ brings. You're gonna draw up an empty bucket. You're gonna just thirst more. It's never enough. You're like, no, no, there's something in the bucket. Yeah, but it doesn't quench your thirst. You just want more. Keep putting that bucket down into making money. Solomon already told us, Ecclesiastes chapter four and five, the more money my eyes feasted upon, the more hungry I just needed more. The more my goods and income increased, the more I desired. This too was a chasing after the wind. This too was meaningless. Listen, if it worked the first time your eyes lay hold of a pornographic image or video, you'd be like, ooh, that was good. I'm satisfied. I don't need anything else. But there's never enough images. There's never enough video. There's never enough stuff. There's never enough power. There's never enough politics. There, there's never, ever enough accumulation. There's never enough money. The more you get, the more you get, the more you want. And Solomon spends again, or the Solomonic wisdom that is delivered in Ecclesiastes 12 chapters reminding us of what Jesus is saying right here in this very moment. If you put the bucket of your soul into any other relationship more than your relationship with me, you're gonna die of thirst even faster. Into any cause more than my cause, any hope other than the hope I give, Jesus says, any other rest than the rest I bring, any other gift more than the gift of me, any other beauty more than me, you're going to die of thirst even faster faster. Verse 15, the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty again and have to keep coming here to draw this water. Please bring this. You know what's happening here? She is staring eternal life in the face and asks for magic water instead. Now, lots of commentaries and scholars agree here that she really isn't getting it, that she is unaware. She is ignorant. I don't mean dumb or foolish. That's not a, that at all. She can be very brilliant. The text doesn't say. 
The point is, is that ignorance, the true etymology of that word is she is completely unaware of who it is that is before her and what it is that he is actually offering like many of us. So what Jesus then says next seems like a really abrupt change, but he's trying to get a hold of her attention so that she understands what he's really offering and what he really means. Verse 16, he told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Man, what is Jesus trying to do? Is he trying to embarrass her? Dogpile her? What's going on here? Oh, I don't think so. That's not what he's trying to do. He's very gracious. What he's doing here is loving her fully and completely by the grace and power and mercy of Almighty God. Jesus is calling her to stop digging her own wells and her own cisterns. This is gracious. She tried to find living water in five husbands, but each of those were broken cisterns. And if we keep putting our buckets down into the well of a relationship, expecting it to satisfy our deepest longings, we will continue to thirst and thirst again. She dug broken cisterns this way. What way do you dig them? If it's not relationships, what is it that you're digging for? You say, is it a problem that she took joy in in a husband? No, it's fine that she finds joy in a husband. It's not fine for her husband to be the joy of her life. It's fine that you find joy in your job. It's not okay for your job to be the joy of your life. This goes from what? This is when we take a good thing and make it a God thing, and therefore it becomes a bad thing. We take what is a creaturely or a created thing and begin to worship the created thing, as the Apostle Paul says, instead of the creator himself, and therefore a good thing that God has given us, money, food, resources, relationships, even power. Power is a beautiful thing that God gives to some people to wield influence, but it's either used to the glory of God and the benefit of others, or it is selflessly absorbed into a heart of tyranny. Nothing wrong that she found joy in her husband. Nothing wrong that you find joy in the good things that God gives. But is this the joy of our life? And when we elevate it, then it becomes something that becomes a well. And we're like, I just need more of this. Then I will be satisfied. Then I will be happy. Well, at this great prediction, verse 19, she says, sir, The woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Now, our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that we're a place where we must worship in Jerusalem. This is the difference. Our ancestors, right, the Samaritans are like, no, 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 the holy mountain is Mount Gerizim. And the Jewish people are saying, no, the holy mountain is Mount Zion. And they both had their temples and they both had destroyed at one point through cultural wars, right, the temples of each other. Verse 21, the woman Woman, Jesus replied, verse 21, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the heavenly father, right? Neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. It's not either mountain. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. What does he mean by that? You're worshiping and you don't even have the completeness of the revelation of the word. You only have 
the beginning of Torah, the Pentateuch, the first five books. This is his implication here. We know that Jesus embraced more than this because he quotes often from Psalms. He quotes often from Isaiah, right? He goes outside of those five books that the Samaritans only accepted as their Torah or as their Bible. He says, you Samaritans worship what you don't know. We worship what we do know. Jewish community, the Jews have the full revelation. Of course, that revelation isn't just in the word itself, but there's the living word right before her, God incarnate, the logos, the word in the flesh. He says this, for salvation is from the Jews. And of course, this is true, the lineage all the way through Abraham, who they would have agreed upon all the way through to the son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ. He goes on, yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind, they are the kind of worshipers the father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. In the power of the Holy Spirit And in truth, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is, he is truth embodied. Verse 25, so the woman said, I know, right? She can tell he's a prophet because of his prediction and his telling her of her past without knowing the details. She says, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. And when he comes, he'll explain this to you and me. (laughs) That's funny, right? Christ is right before her. Yeah. Hey, Jewish man, there's this guy coming, Messiah, the Christ. And when he comes, he'll help you understand what this is all about. She really wasn't getting it. And then Jesus just finally makes that great Christological declaration. Verse 26, then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. I am the Christ. It's not too often that you get Jesus in any of the gospels being this definitive. And I want you to pay attention to this. This is very, very important. This is with someone who there is a historical barrier, theological barrier, gender barrier, moral purity barrier, all the barriers you could think Jesus would never love someone like this. And verse four, I have to go through Samaria. Why? Because he's like, I got a divine appointment with somebody I love. That's what this is about. I read this text and I think about four points about Christ and living water. I want to conclude our message with first, number one, he already has it. Christ and living water, he already has it. She asked, where can you get this living water? Jesus doesn't need a bucket. He is the bucket. Number two, he is willing to provide it. Verse 10, he is willing to provide it. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you. I want you to know that Jesus Christ himself is the living water. He is the bucket. He is the living water. And he is the well that we go to to find meaning and purpose in life. But he won't turn you down. You ask and it will be given to you. 
this living water. The third thing is he will supply it, but only if you ask. We need to go to verse 10 again and see where it says, he would have and will give you living water. But what happens here? If you knew the gift of God, who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him. We must ask him for this life. We must ask him for the only kind of life that satisfies. And then the fourth thing from this text, he is the only source of it. There is no other source. Everything else is a broken well, broken cisterns. It cannot be found in any earthly well. You can spend the rest of your life, I could spend my life, and we can chase and chase and chase. We will not find anything that quenches our thirst and satisfies our hunger apart from Christ. Do you know what the Bible calls Jesus the true bread from heaven, the true manna? He's called the true bread and he's called the living water. When they do the miracle, the feeding of the 5,000, in fact, two chapters later in John chapter six, there's the feeding of the 5,000, right? Where Jesus takes one Chick-fil-A sandwich and turns it into 5,000 Chick-fil-A sandwiches, all right? There's the feeding of the 5,000. He multiplies the fishes and the loaves and everybody has their fill. And then he says in there, and John records him saying, I am the bread of life. I am the true bread from heaven. Come and what? Eat from me and you'll never hunger again. But he doesn't stop there in John 6. He says, and you take a drink from me and you will never thirst again. What do you think we do when we take communion? We eat and we drink in anticipation of what? He is our living bread. And by the power of his shed blood on the cross, He has quenched the ultimate thirst of all humanity, the need for reconciliation with the creator, almighty God, and the need to be forgiven of our deepest, darkest hurts and pains, just like the Samaritan woman, and the realization that our biggest longing to love and be loved in the human heart is ultimately satisfied in a relationship with Jesus Christ as a blessing through other human beings in fellowship, our brothers and sisters in Christ, or even in a marriage, but not to aggrandize, not to love other human beings more than we love Christ himself and make them a well. Oh, whatever we aggrandize, eventually we will demonize. John chapter four, verse 13, he is the only source of it. Jesus answered again, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Three chapters later, on the last day, John 7, on the last and greatest day of the festival, what festival? The Feast of Tabernacles. Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. You know what happens on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacle? The high priest would go down from the temple mount to the pool of Siloam, and he would take a a silver uh, pitcher, or well, he would take a pitcher, uh, a golden pitcher actually, and fill it up with water from the pool, take that living water from the pools of Siloam back to the temple, and the high priest would pour it into a silver bowl or a representation that the Feast of Tabernacles, that the living streaming water of God, what is this representative of again in Passover? God bringing water out of a rock to feed people in their most thirsty moments. Do you know what the book of Revelation says? 
Revelation 21 and 22 ends, the Bible ends saying that there will be living water that will flow from the throne of the Lamb of God who is seated on that throne and the people in the kingdom of heaven will never ever thirst again because they will drink forever and ever from this living water. So here's Jesus on the last great day of the festival and the high priest does his whole thing and the crowd would follow, by the way, would follow him down and come back and the roar would increase and increase and increase in the anticipation of the living water going down into the bowl. And Jesus then interrupts this with a loud voice. Why does his voice get loud? So that the crowd, he can shout over the crowd. Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Well, no, no, here's the living water in the ceremony. No, I am the living water. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. What are you talking about? Oh yes, from the power of my spirit. Why? By this, he meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the spirit had not yet been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified, crucified resurrected and exalted through the ascension. Jesus is saying, oh yeah, one day you get to have my Holy Spirit in you, the living water, the Spirit of God referred to not as just the breath, but the living water, but in the kingdom of heaven forever and ever, his presence. When Jesus died on the cross, he had seven wonderful, amazing sayings. You can only find the seven things, not from any single gospel. It has to be a synopsis of all four gospels. One of the things that he says in those seven last famous sayings is, I thirst. If you think it's just because he was dying from terminal dehydration, you are correct and you would be incorrect. Yes, physically he wanted water, so they take and bring some water basically up to him, some wine vinegar up to Jesus' lips so that he could have his thirst quenched, but that's not why Jesus is saying, I thirst. There was another thing that he said on the cross too. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He bears our sins and goes to a land that is very, very parched by taking on our curse and the weight of our sin. He who knew no sin takes on our sin. What is he thirsting for on the cross? When he says, I thirst, it's not just literal physical dehydration. It's spiritual terminal dehydration of the people. He thirsts for their salvation. This is why Jesus says he is willing. This is why in the garden of Gethsemane, he says, shall this cup pass? And his response is, yes, I shall have to drink up that cup too. What is that? I shall have to offer my blood. I shall have to offer my life and not just die physical dehydration, but my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's a great mystery in that dereliction and that seemingly rupture, but non-rupture of the relationship, the mystery of it between him and the heavenly father on the cross. He doesn't just need water. He says, I thirst, what? I thirst for the salvation of the people that are doing this to me, which is why he says another thing on the cross. Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. It's Jesus outside the city, weeping, weeping over Jerusalem, thirsting for the salvation of the people, drinking up the cup of suffering 
so that you and I do not have to die from spiritual terminal dehydration. We have the living water of a living God in his spirit in us forever and ever unto his glory. Amen. Heavenly Father, bless the people of Eastview today in any way, shape, or form that they are digging, that I am digging, that we are digging broken cisterns. Convict us to no longer forsake you, but to turn to you, our living God. I pray, Heavenly Father, right now, I pray that whatever this congregation faces at any moment, at any time in life, and even today, may your hand bless them to turn to you to drink up, to acknowledge the power of your life and spirit that is alive in them. And Lord Jesus, if there's any person here or watching online, or at the Bloomington campus, Father, that that doesn't know you yet and has not drank from your well, Lord Jesus, they have not turned to you to be their source of living water. If they have continued to put their bucket down into all the things of this earthly life and found these broken wells and cisterns, may they turn to you now and say to you sincerely, Lord Jesus, I need you. Please forgive me of my sins. I am thirsty and I want you to quench my thirst. Thank you that on the cross, you thirsted for my salvation. So save me, cleanse me, forgive me, and hydrate me with your love, your power, your wisdom, and your forgiveness. I want you to be my Lord and my Savior forever. For it's in Christ's name we pray these things and give thanks. Amen.